sorry, I'm tired. I'm bloated. <laughs> my bangs are in my eyes because they're too long. And it's windy outside. It's windy outside. I'm just, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah. But the only thing that is going to keep me going right now is more stories about Rush. <laughs> That's it. Like, if there's anything oh. that I believe can bring, wake me up inside. <laughs> that can real give you that ev- evanescence, you know. It's going to be Getty, Alex, and Neil. Yeah. So. Well. Fuck the l- formalities. Well, lucky for you, I didn't read through any of my notes before I came Woo! here. So It's going to be a wild ride. It's going to be a long one because we have a lot to cover. Yeah. So let's just get right into it. Welcome to Rock Candy. <laughs> Your podcast bringing a weekly sweet treats from the world of music. And we're on the finale yeah. of Rush. Number three of that three-parter. Yeah. And it's it's a chonky boy. It's it's a, it's a big chongus. It's, it's a big chongus and I'm probably going to cry. So... This will be fun. We're just going to be like really tired and emotional. Like, literally the whole time I'm writing my notes, I'm like, but I don't want to write this part. Oh, this is no. sad. Yeah, it's, um, this was difficult to get through, which I guess is appropriate considering it is, it's my last oh, research fuck. episode. So. Oh. Yeah. Now oh, I'm going to get emotional. I'm going to cry, and then and you're going to cry, cry, and then we're all going to cry. They're going to cry. Listener, I know you're going to cry, and it's okay. <sighs> yeah. It's okay. I, I don't think I've cried since Wendy O. Williams, which is was a long time ago. No, we got fuck over something. I don't remember, though. Meh. Somebody else find it. I'm tired. <laughs> we, I don't think you'll understand. I got like 10 hours of sleep this weekend, and that's yeah. not okay anymore. Yeah. We're old. We're too old for that shit. Mm-hmm. We're like, we're like, we're rush are right now in the story. We're like, we're, I don't, I don't want to stay up all night and like, yeah, you know, party. I really just want to go home and sleep. Maybe, maybe we should change our name from rush to chill out. <laughs> How's that? Hey, we're, we're chill now. Yeah. <laughs> Forget rush. We're chill. Nice. Yeah. What, yeah. Are you, what are you drinking? Oh yeah. Uh, so part of the reason we're tired is for a great reason because we went to Boston yesterday to do one of our uh, our special guest our special podcast guest podcast for the new for year next month. Um, that's all we'll tell you. You can try to figure it out from there. Yeah, but we went to Bone Up Brewing finally. Well, I went finally. You were like that's you had been. Time. Yeah, you had I been like love this. Place. You know what? Honestly, the hype was real. Right? The hype was real. It was so cute. It was such a great place. Yeah. Just like death metal and really friendly staff, great fucking beers. Fantastic beers. All of them were very good. And amazing artwork and merch. I love it. I, I love yeah. this place. It's... I spent so much on booze that I didn't buy a shirt, but I should have bought a shirt. I'll buy a shirt next time. I did find the tank top that I bought last time and totally forgot what I did with it. Oh. I hung it up in my closet like I should have. You're an adult. And that's why I couldn't find it. My God. I know. I hate <laughs> when I actually do the right thing and I'm like, yeah. where did I put it's that? It's not in one of the many piles of clothes I just have in my closet room. Yeah. So. Well, there you go. You did it. But anyway, yes, from Bone Up Brewing. I am drinking Awkward Conversation, which is a cranberry orange grisette, which is a type of like a... Like a farmhouse? Vice, you know. Like a Hefeweizen? Hefeweizen. I'm like, vice. <laughs> vice. I, you Miami get, you, vice. You get it. Miami Hefeweizen. <laughs> we should make a beer called that. Miami Vicen. Uh, how come nobody has thought of that yet? Yeah, you fucked up, everyone. 
I'm, I'm sure somebody has. But I assume awkward conversation will work because... Because it's Rush and it's they're Rush. a bunch of nerds. Yeah. And Neil is extremely awkward. Neil's like, so. I really don't want to talk to anyone. Exactly. And I will talk about that in this episode. So. Excellent. Yeah. Well, let's fucking, yeah. let's fucking do this. Sure. So we ended the last episode touching upon the album Grace Under Pressure, released in April 1984. Oh my god. And Rush's growing interest in electronic sounds. Which I'm here for. Yeah. This album would be the turning point in the band's trajectory, for better or for worse. Depends on which side you're on, I guess. Looking back on it now, I can appreciate their, their keyboard era. Of course. Which... I guess at the time, people who are diehard Rush fans really in here for the big chongus. Um, I don't <laughs> I don't think they were really here for all the keyboards. But yeah, for starters, they worked on this album longer than they had any album up to this point. Wow. They may have taken a couple months or so to record previous albums, but Grace Under Pressure took three weeks to write and create a demo tape, then four months of 14-hour days to record. What? That's a lot. Holy shit. Yeah. But they didn't write any big chonguses. No, they didn't. This was huh. this was very much uh, poppier, more mainstream. Yeah, it was a pop chongus. Pop chongus. <laughs> this time around, the guys decided to part ways with longtime producer Terry Brown, who the band had been collaborating with for about 10 years yeah. at that point. He produced like everything. All of their stuff. Yeah. He's this, a real OG. Yeah. This is where the title of the album comes from. It's a quote from I roll Ernest Hemingway. Oh, do we not like Ernest Hemingway? He is a shitbag. Okay. Yeah, he's not a good dude. <laughs> and it's a reference to the parting of ways with Terry Brown, Grace Under Pressure, trying to be nice during a very stressful was, time. Was it an amicable split? Was Terry yeah, pissed? Like, was he like, I get it. He You're doing a new thing. I don't think he was super happy. Yeah. But he also did not want to produce music for where they were going. Yeah. He's like, I didn't want to produce a pop album. That's fair. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. Yeah. No hard feelings. Rush wanted to experiment with electronic sounds and go in a different direction. Terry wasn't interested in producing that kind of music, so he gracefully bowed out. All right. That's totally legit. Yeah. They actually brought in a pop producer to work with them. Oh the my total goodness. opposite of Terry Brown. Stop. What? But a pop producer would be more open to what Rush wanted to bring in, specifically electronic drums and more keyboards. Because <laughs> Getty wants to make sure he can't see anything. Yeah, exactly. They experimented with reggae, ska, and new wave, Ooh. creating shorter and hookier songs than ever before, even when some of the songs were about really heavy shit. So they didn't lose like that, that, that feeling the of like- The meaning behind- Yeah. yeah they no. were like, but we can tell this story in four minutes as opposed to 20. Right. All right. And Neil's lyrics became way more concise, too. Whereas before he was telling stories, now he's just like- He was a weaving- Tales before. Indeed. Now he's just getting pretty much straight to the point, sort of. He's yeah. like, I can readers digest this shit. Hold yeah. up. Yeah. The problem with more keyboards was that <laughs> Alex's guitar got lost. This was oh. sp especially true with their next album, Power Windows, released in October 1985. He was still writing some really great riffs, but overpowering synth permeated nearly every inch of the record. 
So there was nowhere for him to shine. Power windows? Power windows. Like, in the cars? <laughs> like, is that what they were like, singing about? in, in the, the cars? cars? <laughs> I'm just... Why? I think... <laughs> It probably started from a joke. <laughs> I don't know. It probably did. That's fair. I'm sure we definitely have plenty of album names in our brains that are uh, make no sense to anyone but us. Yeah, definitely. But I also think that there, there was kind of a play on it because they're bringing in all of these new electronic instruments and everything, and it's kind of like when you get when when remember when our parents got cars that had power power windows windows. it was newfangled technology and you were fucking amazed by it because you didn't have to hand crank that bitch yeah so you know what you're deep in the rush lore now i know you're like no i know where they're coming from i'm kind of making that up but i don't think you're wrong i might not be wrong i don't know this is there was a lot guys i'm kind of just flying by the seat of my pants right now fly by night (laughs) Fly by the seat of your pants. Keyboards and electronic drums became the star of the show instead of what were always the key rush instruments, just guitar, bass, drums. Right. So was Neil was playing um, electronic drums instead? Or they, were, they weren't using a drum machine, were he they? He was playing electronic drums also. So he would have okay. the electronic drum set incorporated into his actual drum set. Sorry, did he need seven more drums? Nobody had them. All right. You know Plus what? Plus everything else. Respect. Have you seen like live footage of them playing with his full set? Because it is. <laughs> oh, I've seen his full set. <laughs> yeah. No, I've seen. I mean, I've seen it, but I don't think I've like really. He's like locked in there. He has drums literally 360 all around him. Oh. He can't get out. I don't think I noticed. How does he get out? I'm sure he has he people doesn't. move them. <laughs> But like, <laughs> no, no, he lives there now. He is a part of the drum set. Yeah, he has to crawl underneath it and like go through all the wires like he's doing some 007, like don't touch the lasers. Oh, that might be fun Bullshit. though. <laughs> <laughs> but Alex and Getty had some fierce arguments over the increasing role of keyboards in the band. Oh, Alex found it difficult to work his guitar around the keyboards and was like, why am I trying to bend my role to the will of this other instrument that was never here All right. in the first place? I'm just as important and I don't deserve to be sidelined. No. That's I, very legit. I agree with him. Oh, my God. Are they having... Are they fighting? They're, they're fighting. Oh, my God. Are they having an awkward conversation? They're fighting. Oh, shit. Much like when Coca-Cola changed their recipe in 1985 and became one of the biggest marketing blunders in history, (laughs) fans were not vibing with this new and improved version of Rush. Rush. Like new Coke, their new Rush. Yeah. (laughs) Kill Supreme that nobody liked it. Yeah, people don't like change either, though. Yeah. This is where a lot of the fans dropped off. However, there was a base group of fans that stood by them, just as curious to see where they were headed as Rush themselves were. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's maybe it's just growing pains. They're like, all right, we want to try new things. They just want but... to. They just want to try new things. Like you can't expect a long-running band to just do the same epic prog rock shit yeah. over and over again. And I mean, honestly, at this point, what is this? Like their twelfth album. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure by album 12, you get to kind of do whatever the fuck you want. It's kind of the same thing that Opeth 
happened that happened with Opeth. Oh. They changed genres. They went from uh death metal to progressive metal and they lost a fuck ton of fans oh. and a lot of people really fucking hated what they did but then they ended up getting new fans but then they ended up getting new fans that mm-hmm. liked where they were going with their prog metal See, there you so go. yeah it, it is what it is it is what it is at least the original fans will always have you know the old stuff yeah it's fine, everyone. The it's, new stuff doesn't take away from the old stuff. Yeah, they're not shitty people just because they wanted to try new things. Right. Guys. This would eventually lead them to recording Hold Your Fire in 1987. This was their least well-received album of the 80s. Oh, wow. And I That's want, saying a lot, I feel like. And I want to make it clear, I'm talking about these albums and their success based on fan reception and critic ratings. A lot of fans were like, what the fuck are they doing? Oh, no. I don't like this. But the records were still going platinum and breaking the top 10 in the US, UK, and Canada. Oh. Hold Your Fire did the worst and it still went gold. Shit. I mean, wow. Damn. They have like. Damn, Rush. Shit. I forgot to look up the statistics, but they have like 20. 14, 20 platinum albums and the rest are gold. Yeah, I was going to say, like, sounds like every album at least, like. Cumulatively in the United States, they've sold, or maybe worldwide, I can't remember, they've sold 57, I think, million copies of their albums altogether. I think it's 57. That's pretty rad. Guys, I got a lot of facts in my head. They get jumbled. That's, yeah. Yeah. Yup. Yeah. Yeah. So the lead single was Time Stand Still, the first song that Neil wrote for the album. And I think this is a good example of how Neil's lyric writing changed in the 80s along with Rush's sound. Mm. We've become used to these epic tales of fantasy and science fiction, Mm -hmm. like Big Chongus or 2112. And he was writing out full sentences and paragraphs describing sweeping scenes of intergalactic war. Mm -hmm. But throughout their 80s electric era, the stanzas got shorter. The adjectives were gone. No more complex sentences. Time stands still has comparatively stunted lines. Oh, I guess I never realized that. It's just very short phrases. And that's pretty much it. But Time Stands Still is also an outlier in Russia's catalog because it features a guest vocalist, mm. I think, f- maybe for the first time ever for Rush. At least it's you've mentioned. Yeah. yeah. Amy Mann, who at the time was still a part of the band Till Tuesday, provided very limited vocals to this track, but her voice is so pretty and blends beautifully with Gettys. Mm. She wasn't their first choice, however, and wasn't even their second. Mm. She was their third choice. Asked to participate after Cyndi Lauper and Chrissy Hind both turned it down. Well, I mean, I don't think Cyndi would have worked because I think having Cyndi Lauper and Getty Lee is just too much. (laughs) But I want to see it. But I do want to see it. But I want to see it. And then Chrissy Hine, eh. Whatever. No, I think you're right. Amy Mann's voice is like, yeah, the best. And man, I, I had you watch that video. Oh, well, remember I tried to watch it in the car? <laughs> well, I told, I texted it to you and I was like, this gives me motion sickness. And, and then, then we were in the car and I was like, let me watch. Oh, no. I can't watch this. <laughs> it's it's literally just five minutes of swirling cameras. Them playing 
they're you know performing the song in front of green screens and they're floating around very fast around <laughs> the screen while Amy Mann is pointing a big old camera at them. I don't yeah, know. That's about it. And at the end, she kind of just flies away and they like <laughs> stop playing and just stare and it's like it's so fucking that's the cheesy. most 80s shit it's so cheesy <laughs> but i kind of love it yeah 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 amy mann also provided vocals on the song tai shan which is regarded by fans critics and rush themselves as one big old mistake oh no it was an attempt at being edgy and experimental and like paying homage to this like temple in china but it Mm -hmm. kind of comes off as white guys making asian music (laughs) no no and according to alex it was corny and one of the worst songs they've ever written it really doesn't sound that bad but the more i thought about it while i was listening to it i'm like yeah you should not mention this ever again I, you know, at least, like, they can look at it in retrospect and be like, we were, we're sorry. That yeah. was a mistake. That, yeah. And <laughs> they very much believe it's a mistake. It's, it's fine. Thank you. Again, Thank you. when you're on, like, album 15, it's like, I don't know. Let's see what happens. Oh, God. What have we done? Oh, uh, yeah. You're giving yourself more chances for mistakes, which is fine. It was the 80s, you know. When everybody you made mistakes. Yeah, everybody. We all did. I made mistakes. And you I was were like, one. I was, Yeah. I made mistakes when I'm one. Did you? When you're one, you make tons of mistakes. You're a baby. You don't know any any better. You are a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Hold Your Fire was the album that made them stop and think, but maybe not keyboards. Oh, that's a lot sooner than I thought. Alex was over it. The fans were over it. And it was time to go back to basics. Mind you. Basics. Ah. Uh, um, I'm not sorry. They didn't like completely get rid of keyboards, but right. I'll get into it later. But first, the boys needed a break. While Alex and Getty stayed close to home, Neil went on an adventure. Ooh, I'm going on an adventure. <laughs> oh, Neil was like, it's time. It's time for my big adventure, my big Bill Boat Baggins adventure. Exactly. Oh. Except he didn't go to Rivendell or Mordor. He went to Africa. Oh, shit. So. He's I, facing those rains. Yeah. All down right. in Africa. All right. So in November 1988, Neil participated in David Moser's Bicycle Africa. Oh. A month-long bicycle tour of Cameroon. A country in Africa's western coast. That sounds pretty fucking rad, actually. Yeah. I mean, they they went through a lot of different places because Cameroon is, at least at that time, was a very interesting place because you had very nice cities that had, like, luxurious accommodations. Yeah. And then you had very poor villages where you had to sleep on a dirt floor. Yeah. So he they went through all of those they even went into the country of Chad where they like ran into passport issues. They like had to get on a bus to catch a plane and the bus kept breaking down oh, and fuck. fires or tires kept blowing out. And he was also on this tour with, I think, four other people, oh. three or four other people. And they were just random people that he didn't know. And this David Mosier guy who was leading them on a bicycle tour through Africa. 
So it wasn't like some kind of charity event. It was just like, hey, no. who wants to ride a bicycle around no. Africa? I'm sure he paid a lot of money to go be like physically, <laughs> to physically assault himself on a bicycle for a month. Yeah, I've done that before. It's called a spin class. Yeah. I My don't, ass was never the same. Yeah, I don't know how he did that. But I also believe that this is when he started wearing the weird hat. This is the hat. At least this is, I think, where he got the idea for the hat. <laughs> because I, from what I can understand, I'm sorry if I'm wrong, but I believe it is a koofy cap. Yeah, I could see that. And a koofy cap is kind of a hat that is the same kind of shape as the one he wears that has like the um, wide brim mm-hmm. and it's circular and has a pretty flat top to it. Yep. And it usually has like colorful patterns or designs or symbols or whatever on it Mm -hmm. and eventually neil would just have people make custom ones for him yeah because his were always like pretty dark and like i don't want to say bland but they were just pretty like he would wear usually wear black ones yeah 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 and he would have like at least for i think the clockwork angels tour he would wear the black one with the red symbols on it Mm. i think they reflected clockwork angels it could have been before that. I don't know. He's He has a lot of fucking hats. But like... Just like a house full of hats. Yeah. And I, I understand that he wanted to wear them as like paying homage to Africa. Because oh, like his he, time there. He had a really, you know, profound time there. Oh, I fucking bet. Um, It's just now it would be seen as a cultural appropriation. Yeah. So. I, I'm sure like... Now it would be more like, maybe I won't wear this so much. But like, yeah, yeah I mean, like, not that I'm excusing it, but the 80s, 90s, it's like, it didn't know better. It happened a lot. It happened a lot. And like, honestly, that's probably the best case scenario of that happening. Yeah. This is probably the least, least offensive, offensive cultural thing? appropriation yeah. Yeah. instance that I can think of. Yeah. So I'm... I'm not going to get too... Yeah, I'm not going to get really wound up about yeah, it. It's it's just... I'm not going to get a tight butthole over it, so... Yeah, I agree. I don't think it's it's worth it. Yeah. But if you would like to know more about his journey through Africa, he wrote a book on his oh. experience called The Masked Writer, Cycling in West Africa. And this would be the first of many books he would write, which would include six more nonfiction and four fiction books. Holy shit. He wrote 11 books. Yes, he did. That's a lot of books. Yes, it is. Oh, my gosh. A lot of them are autobiographical, which makes me really want to read them. Mm. Uh, So, yeah, maybe when I have some fucking free time and can read a book that's not for this podcast. Which is funny because you will have that time and you're just going to read a book about a musician i'm who am i kidding i'm going to watch great british baking show for the 16th 17th 18th 19th through the 50th time and not read a damn book that's what i'm gonna do i think we earned it i fucking yeah we earned it (laughs) but let's talk more about rush not us (laughs) presto was released in november 1989 just over a month away from a new decade And Rush were ready to show everyone that they were leaving the synth-heavy shit in the 80s. Guitar-driven songs were back on the menu, boys. Ah! (laughs) Honestly, it makes sense. I think everyone, by the time they were hitting, like, 89, 90, they're like, maybe we should try to take this seriously again. I see one more fucking keyboard. 
To help achieve this new sound that amped up the rock and tamped down the synth, they brought in producer Rupert Hine, whom we briefly talked about in our Stevie Nicks episode because she wrote the song Rooms on Fire about him. Yes. He's I'm a, like, I know that He's name. a really weird looking English guy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah, yes. that one. Yup. Yeah. Yeah. Yup. To him, it was stupid that they were drowning in keyboards. So his main objective was to get Rush back to being the power trio powerhouse. All right. Right off the bat, Presto blasts us with an amazing sequence reminiscent of their early prog days or YYZ. Okay. It's a sequence where the guitar, bass, and drums are playing the exact same thing in unison. Kind of like of YYZ. Yeah. They're all doing the same thing. They do it again in Presto. Oh, that does that that gets you pretty pumped. It's effective. I bet like people were like, oh shit, oh shit, are they back? <laughs> guys, are they back? Rush is back, guys. Rush is back. <laughs> Somebody opens up the window. Sir, <laughs> sir, what day is it? <laughs> it's Monday. Rush is back. <laughs> what? <laughs> Who Rush? Are you the like, artful dodger? Who are you? <laughs> like the Tom Sawyer guys? <laughs> what? Who still listens to them? So that initial sequence is like a musical finger snap as if to say, hey, over here, pay attention. We're back on our bullshit. Come on. Yay, bullshit. They were showing, not just telling their audience that keyboards were out and their rock roots were back in. All right. All right. All right. All right. So they toured for Presto in early 1990, but kept it short because they weren't sure about how it would go and not really sure how audience would receive the album. Okay, that's fair. But it turned out to be better than they'd hoped. They were so hyped up over the successful tour that they took the energy into the studio. Nice. Where in September 1991, they released an album called Roll the Bones. Yeah. Yeah, they did. They sure did. Yeah, I know where you're going with this already. They were feeling real experimental. They were like, hey, we're not going to do keyboards anymore, but like, you guys want to try something fun? Yeah. You want to get a little frisky? They started messing around with funk rhythms on Presto and expanded on them with Roll the Bones, which led to one of the weirdest diversions they have ever had. Mm Mm-hmm. The title track is objectively not a bad song, and it's actually pretty serious. Yeah, like, honestly, like, it's catchy. Yeah. And you know what? Now that I think about that song, I see what you mean about Neil's writing now. Yeah. About how it's, like, it's still serious, but it's definitely, like, a lot less. It's condensed and concise. It's not as extra. Yeah. Okay. Yep. All right. Not as flamboyant, I suppose. The lyrics are about taking chances, rolling the dice, or the bones, as it were. And they certainly did take chances with this song, as you find out around minute three when the rap starts. The what? Yes, you heard me right. Rap. And and it's not like they brought someone on no, to rap. No. Neil was getting really into hip hop, taking deep dives into artists like Public Enemy and LL Cool J. At least he got... At least he did deep dives into the really good ones. I'm just picturing very, very white Neil Peart (laughs) going to Africa, wearing this hat. And then coming and then on the plane, he's reading something and he just slams it shut and goes, 
I need to listen to LL Cool J. Oh my God. Somebody get me an LL Cool J CD. I need it. <laughs> like, and then he turns into that like guy from all those 90 movies, 90s movies where he's like, no, I know all about like the black, the black struggle and stuff now. And like black people just look at him like, no, 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 no. I mean, we, no. we it, it, no. <laughs> and no. starts calling everybody brother. And they're just like, yeah. No, Neil no. never did any of this. He never but did. I'm just like kind of picturing it as like a funny little side cannon. It's cute, but also mm, cringy. It's cringy cute. Yeah. No, I don't know if that's a thing. Yeah. So he decided to roll the bones with this song with lyric with the lyrics, and he wrote a little rap. Oh yeah, he did. And they originally wanted a real rapper to record that part of the song. <laughs> then they thought maybe they'd get cheeky and have a comedian do it. Show the listener that they know it's campy and they're in on the joke. But Getty ultimately did the rap himself. <laughs> yeah, he did. Though they changed <laughs> his pitch dramatically. Yes. Oh, my gosh. It's so weird. Guys, I ha- I, I am okay saying pause this right now and go just, just YouTube Just go find it. Roll the Bones. Go find Roll the Bones on YouTube and just listen to it because it's an experience you need. Yeah, you need to experience this, yeah. <laughs> especially because in the music video they have like a fucking skeleton just with sunglasses on doing the rap. It's, I it's didn't watch the video, but that's hilarious. adorable. That's Absolutely actually kind of cute. Yeah, <laughs> but say what you will about it, at least they weren't afraid to try new things. You know what? I guess if you're looking for a silver lining, folks, I'm, there it is. I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt here. But this like, is how you show that you pref- you actually like this band without saying you re- you prefer this band. Like I feel like this if this is a band that we did not like or thought like the lead singer oh, was an asshole. Eviscerated. Like if this was like the the Misfits or like the I, Grateful I Dead, would be we would pulling rip their them a new guts butthole. out. Yeah, I would be ripping their guts out and hanging them with their own fucking intestines. Like it would I be... just, I just want to point out that we're well aware of our hypocrisy. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We're aware of who we are as people. And yes, it is what it is. You know, it is. The tour for World of Bones saw Pearl Jam and Primus opening for them. Really? Two bands that were steeped in gritty, organic rock and roll. Huh. Actually, I feel like that'd be a really good show. I'd go. I would 100% go. I do not like Primus. but I, like I hear Primus it, enough. I hear they put on a really great show, and I appreciate that. You could choose. No, I, I think I think we could... You, I mean, because you got What's-His-Face. Let's go. Claypool? Thank you. I was like, what is his name? Les Claypool, very talented bassist. Indeed. And then hanging out with Getty Lee, very talented bassist. Yeah. Like, yo, man, if they did like a bassist off. They should. Bass off. A bass off. Um, bass off. I'm going to take off. your bass off. Um, <laughs> They should go on tour and just call it all about that bass. <gasps> oh, my God. Can all the bassists just get together and go on a it's tour called all about all that bass? All of you. <laughs> on stage all at once they just play completely different bass oh my god i just want to see what happens i think it would open a vortex but i'm not sure i'm okay with that yeah (laughs) so pearl jam primus undoubtedly influenced rush's next album but disagreements between getty and alex over the role of keyboards on the album would boil over in the again i thought they like figured it out no that was just like you know 
It was just a one-off. Getty's like, you know what? We don't need the keyboards. Yeah, those it's fine. Were, those were tremors. This is the earthquake. Oh, no. Yeah. Tensions started building between the two on the Roll the Bones tour. They realized that they had different visions for where they wanted their music to go. And what would start out as a as brotherly arguments eventually turned into straight up fights. <gasps> Wait, what? Like... Yeah. I cannot picture these sweet Canadian boys raising a fist for fisticuffs. <laughs> Put them up. Put them up. That spilled over into the studio when it came time to start writing and recording. Getty said that every Monday they would have full-blown finger-pointing screaming arguments. It was almost like Alex was resentful of Getty's keyboards, kind of like a jealous boyfriend in a way. And as soon as Getty got his keyboards out, Alex went into fuck this shit mode. If you like your keyboard so much, Why Getty, you want to marry him? <laughs> oh, no. I kind of get it because I bet like Alex is a fucking amazing guitarist. And he probably is like, you don't really need keyboards because you got me. And you can only indulge your friend's obsession so much before you're like, you really need to like stop and reassess what you're doing. Yeah. Because you're sidelining me and mm-hmm. I feel like a tertiary character when I should be a main character. Right. Like when he's always been a main character. Like right. The main characters are right. Getty. Neil and Alex and their main instruments. Yeah. Um. And also, it's not like Alex has like. It's not like Alex doesn't have a side instrument. Like Getty has the bass and keyboard. Neil right. is like everything you could like, make a noise out of everything by hitting that it. you could possibly find in the percussion section of Guitar Center. <laughs> Neil just has an entire Guitar Center. Pretty much, he is Guitar Center, but, <laughs> but drums. Drum Center. <laughs> And it's not like Alex has anything. Like, what is he going to do? Bring on a saxophone? Right. I mean, he could. That would have been fucking awesome. Imagine he Alex had the with the hair long cu- hair. He had the haircut for a saxophone mm. Oh, player. God. The laser He missed laser his suit. calling. He did. He fucking missed his calling. Alex, it's not too late. Come on, baby. Get on that saxophone game. <laughs> Eventually, they compromised. Sort of. Oh, okay. Because at the end of the day, these dudes are just brothers. Oh. So it was like, all right, you can use your keyboards, but I don't want to be around for it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the album is extremely light on keyboards and much heavier on guitars. Okay. The album's producer, Kevin Caveman Shirley, which is... I don't trust that. It's kind of an appropriate nickname because he looks like a caveman. Okay. He just looks like one. He looks like a he caveman. He doesn't act like a caveman. No. Okay. I mean, he did not communicate on the documentary with clicks and grunts. So <laughs> he spoke English. All right. I guess he is at least a Geico commercial caveman. Oh, okay. Oh, <laughs> I love the Geico cavemen. Yes. So, yeah, he refused to allow Alex to use reverb. Which Alex had become reliant on, but Kevin was insistent that the reverb sounded fucking terrible. Did it? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. So that led to even more screaming matches. (laughs) Let me use my fucking reverb. (laughs) You get to have your stupid keyboards. Come on, man. Yeah. When all was said and done, they named the album Counterparts and released it on October 19th, 1993. They thought the name was appropriate considering all the strain and stress of making the album made them realize 
just how different the three of them are as people. Oh, yeah. Spending more time apart and with their own families between tours and records allowed them to grow apart while still maintaining close friendships with each other. Mm-hmm. But because they're all doing their own things, it's not going to be the same when it went as it was when they were 22 and had an us against the world attitude. Yeah. And just in general, when you get older and like you... Like, you don't even necessarily like, settle down, but like, you know, you go off and you kind of like get your own self-identity. You have a routine with your family. Yeah. And like, you have your own things. And this is like when, before everybody's kind of like living on the same block. Right. This is when everyone's like, oh, but I really like New York or like California or. Or when you're just like, oh, hey, like I'm going to buy a house in like the next town over. Oh, I'm going to get a house like, you know. It's about 20, 25 minutes away. Yeah. Fine. But yeah, it's it's that. It's yeah. like you still make the time, you still do the things, but it's you're also a fucking adult. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So when the counterparts tour concluded, Rush took a break as they are wont to do. Mm-hmm. However, this Smart. one lasted a year and a half, way longer than their usual breaks. Oh, I figured the one where Neil went to Africa was a bit of a long break because he went to fucking I Africa. think it was about the same amount of time. Like a year and a half all right that makes sense it was only a month-long bicycling tour oh so it wasn't like he was there for six months oh okay so getty's wife nancy was about to give birth to their second child a daughter named kyla and he wanted to be home for the beginning of her life well yeah when they had their son julian in the late 70s that was prime rush time and he pretty much missed his entire childhood Wait a minute. So he had one child in the late 70s and another child in the early 90s? Yes. That is a fucking age gap. 14 years apart. Yeah, they oh. didn't They didn't have another kid for 14 years, waiting for a time when Getty could take a break without risking his career. Yeah. And Nancy was like, you missed Julian's like whole childhood. Oh. So if we're going to have another kid, we're going to wait until a time when you can take enough time off to be a dad for the first few years at least yeah so this seemed like the perfect time to take a little a little breakaroo yeah so this freed up alex and neil to pursue side projects all right alex wrote and released a solo album called victor which didn't do too badly sales wise oh i'd never heard of it but sure you know what? Good for him. Most of the time, side projects go nowhere. Yeah, this hit 99 on the Billboard 200 and got him a Juno Award nomination. Oh, it's that's amazing really good. how like shit happens in Canada and we have no idea. Seriously, y'all are six hours away and I'm still like, what? Huh? What? What'd you do? Right. You got award shows? Oh, cool. cool. That sounds nice. Sounds better than ours. You probably are. Meanwhile, Neil performed on and produced two Buddy Rich tribute albums. But even more than that, he had a complete reinvention of his own drumming style. What? It started back in 1991 when he was invited by Buddy Rich's daughter to perform at the Buddy Rich Scholarship Concert in New York. Buddy Rich. I was going to ask. Buddy Rich. How many? Buddy Rich. Thank you. (laughs) It, it's so funny. I can't say his name without thinking about my dad because... Because your dad's name is Buddy Rich. My dad's... First of all, my dad's nickname is Buddy. Um, second of all, growing up, we lived next door to this very awful neighbor who would play drums... Yes. ...at all hours of the night. Yep. 
and he it's he would blast uh old records and play along with them but the thing is uh, 30 years of doing that he fucking sucked the whole time he was just literally banging on drums he no didn't rhythm. work he literally just wanted to bang on the drums all day and that's what he did. He Todd Rundgren deserves the shit yeah. out of that. Throughout my childhood, we called the cops on him many a time. <laughs> and every single time, the cop would stand there and knock it on the door for a solid five to ten minutes. Bro was blasting his music and playing so hard he didn't even hear the cops. He would just not answer the door, so they would just go away. <sighs> but anyway, the point of that is that my dad would constantly call him Buddy Rich. (laughs) (laughs) So every time I hear Buddy Rich, this neighbor... Just terrible drums. The vision of my neighbor just pops into my head, and it's it's horrible. Great. Now that you have a picture of my childhood, that was literally the soundtrack of my childhood. (laughs) Anyway... So yeah, he did the Buddy Rich Scholarship concert in New York. He barely had time to prepare for the concert. And when it came time to perform, he realized he learned a completely different arrangement than the one the band was playing. Oh, no. Yeah. (gasps) Wow. First of all, I cannot picture Neil Parrott not being perfect. I can't imagine him having a blunder like that. Yeah. Yeah. I he, He clearly couldn't either. He was so embarrassed oh so to make up for the blunder he agreed to produce two albums oh each song on these albums would have a different drummer performing each song Mm -hmm. including steve smith the stick man for the rock band journey oh yeah neil was blown away by steve's noticeably improved skills and asked what the fuck he did to get so good yeah i'm sorry i neil i think you're fine though like, if I'm going to compare Neil Peart with the drummer from Journey, Journey. Right? Like, that's not really. Mm, I don't think you're on the same level. I, I don't know many Rolling Stone countdowns of the drummer from Journey being on there. <laughs> I can't pull up a single one in my head right now. No? So, yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Maybe maybe that's why he was so impressed with the improvement. In his <laughs> I've never drumming. seen you on a Rolling Stones yeah. countdown. You could almost get there right now. What did you do? <laughs> Steve divulged that he had been taking drumming lessons from legendary jazz drummer and renowned instructor Freddie Gruber. And that got Neil thinking he could use a bit of a refresher. You know what? There is nothing wrong, no matter how old you are, no matter how many years you've been playing and what you've been doing. Yeah. Just be like, eh, let me just see if I can learn anything else. And you know who doesn't do that? Anyone? Literally anyone. <laughs> Literally. In the four years that we have been doing this, this is the only time I have ever come across anybody actually um, acknowledging that they took lessons after playing for 20, 30 years. I will say um, there are a lot of singers who will, oh, as they get older, absolutely. take lessons. You have to. Yeah. Because, if especially if you didn't take singing lessons when you were younger mm-hmm. to learn how to properly sing. Yeah, you blow out your voice, first of all. You blow out your fucking vocal cords. And as soon as you do that or you find a polyp, then you're like, oh, fuck, I need to learn how to sing the right way. Yep. And your voice changes as you get older and you need to learn how to sing now. Exactly. Again. 
Anyway. So yeah, he'd gotten to a point in his drumming where his timing was spot on. Mm. But he was also very reliant on click tracks and sequencers. Oh. And that made him feel that his drumming was too rigid and he wanted to be loosey-goosey. And what else is going to make you loosey-goosey? Then jazz. Mm-hmm. Then improvisational yaz. Yaz. So he took after Steve and began studying under Freddie Gruber. Under his tutelage, Neil started to think of drumming differently. Mm. That it's more about feeling than timing. Yeah. He even started holding his sticks in the traditional grip. Oh, did he not do that before? He did not. Oh. And he started doing that after his lessons, but I think eventually he went back to the the fist grip. Ah, fist grip. Fist grip. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what it's called. It's nope, whatever. it's Fist Grip. It's Fist Grip. That should be, that's a good band name. Fist Grip. Fist Grip. That's our, uh, that's our punk band. Oh, I like that. Yeah. All right. He incorporated his new drumming techniques into Rush's next album, 1996's Test for Echo. Mm. It, of course, did really well with the album entitled Track Topping the U.S. Rock Charts. Nice. And they did their tour a little differently this time. Sans opening act and with a little more intimate atmosphere. Oh, I bet that was fucking rad. Yeah. They called it an evening with Rush. I want to go to an evening with Rush. (laughs) We were too young. Fucking. But once they got home, their lives and especially Neil's would be completely turned upside down. Oh. Neil had just gotten back from the Test for Echo tour and had precious little time to spend with his only daughter at the time, Selena. She was 19 and about to leave for college in Quebec. So on August 10th, 1997, Neil decided to escort her to college in his on his BMW motorcycle. Oh, wow. Wait, wait. She was going to college. Yeah, she was driving her car. And he was like bringing, <gasps> escorting her there on his motorcycle. Got it. Because I was just like, you can't like bring your school shit on a motorcycle. <laughs> she had a Jeep. Yeah, no. Got it. So the ride was uneventful and Selena got to her destination just fine. Aww. But later that day, probably before Neil even finished his journey home, Selena was in a single vehicle accident on Highway 401 and rolled her Jeep that resulted in her death. Oh, no. Yeah. That's what? Yeah. Oh, my God. That's His really only fucking... child. Oh, my died God. In an accident that you couldn't even blame on somebody else. Fuck. Neil and Jackie were absolutely despondent and yeah. distraught over the death of their only child. I, yeah. With Jackie suffering a nervous breakdown shortly after. Oh, no. And Neil was so broken that he even contemplated suicide. Fuck, come on. So I'm going to read you a big part of... So he wrote a book after all of this, through all of this, really, called Ghost Rider Travels on the Healing Road about this and other things. And this is what he wrote about her death and the immediate aftermath. Mm -hmm. So he said, in the days following Selena's death, I had learned for myself how a sunny day could actually seem dark, the sun totally wrong, and how the world around me, the busy lives of all those oblivious strangers could seem so futile and unreal, as futile and unreal as what passed for my own life. 
It was hard for me to accept that fate could be so unjust, that other people's lives could remain so unscarred by the kind of evil that had been visited upon me. And he continued, The big question why was a ceaseless torment, as my brain struggled for meaning. Is this punishment, a judgment, a curse? And when I saw other people with their children or with their lovers and mates or even just apparently enjoying life, it wasn't so much ill will that moved me as it was jealousy, resentment, and a sense of cruel injustice. Mm. Oh, I'm, I'm like cry. sick <laughs> hearing that though. It was something that they just couldn't make sense of. No. And all of a sudden, this guy who was so curious about life and the wonders of the world just didn't care about anything anymore. Yeah. I, I'm i not at all yeah. surprised. That, and that included Rush. At Selena's funeral, he told Getty and Alex to consider him retired. Oh. And that's, you know what, though? I can't even imagine that they would even, they'd be like, you know what? I get it. You just lost your yeah, fucking kid. Yeah, they totally understood, but like it sucked. But they, and they still you weren't really sure yeah. if he was serious or not, or if he was just grieving. Who the fuck knows? It's a lot. It's it's a fucking lot. And actually, that's why it's best during times like that to not even really make any life choices. And just, just feel your feelings like, and be like, look, I need I need time away. And I don't I'll, know how long this time's going to be, but I need time away. Yeah, I just, I'll get back to you when I get back to you. Yeah, I, yeah. I need my me time. And I'm sure they'd be like, yeah, no shit. Of course you <laughs> fucking do. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Jesus. But the personal tragedies didn't end there. Oh, come on. Facilitated by her intense grief, Jackie was diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer very shortly after Selena died. Wait, what? She was so grief-stricken still that she didn't really fight it. And 10 months after her daughter's death on June 20th, 1998, Neil's common-law wife of 23 years, Jacqueline Taylor, also died. And Neil believed that he died at she died at least in part by a broken heart. Fuck. Oh my gosh, that's his what? wife and his daughter in a fucking his, year. His entire family died within a year. That's I don't even know. How does anybody even deal with that, let alone come out the other side? No. I don't I don't know. I um I'm completely like, speechless. I don't know how to even react to that because it's such a like, fucking wretched... I know that this is a shitty thing to compare it to, but like I have three elderly dogs. Thinking about one of them dying right. is debilitating. So then to compare it to somebody who lost a daughter. To compare it to this. And then their wife. And like you and I have gone through one of our best friends unexpectedly dying. Yeah. Way too early. Yeah. For her to have passed. And like knowing what we went through. And like, yeah. I cannot even fathom like some like the two people in your life who are like your like your, your wife your and your kid and your constants the people that you just expect to be there for you always are just gone and i i can't even because i can't even imagine like yeah i don't know how you get through that i don't know how you get on the other side of that a weaker person wouldn't have been able to no not oh no 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 yeah i mean Actually, that's a fair point. You know, Neil 
seems like somebody who like is a strong person who has seen shit, been through the ringer and is, I mean, I don't want to say like, cause that sounds corny. I don't want to be like, he's a survivor, but like he is. No, he's like the silent strong type, which I, I, this makes me sound like an asshole, but I kind of identify with that. Yeah. Cause like, I don't really express my emotions at all. Really? <laughs> Unless I'm mad. What? I've <laughs> but, never noticed. <laughs> but like, I feel like I have a pretty good way of getting through things yeah. that are very tragic or difficult or something like that. And it's usually by just being like the stoic, solid type that's just kind of the rock for mm. everybody. But I think also I there's... I could be wrong. I don't know. There's a realism that you yeah. have and I, I'm sure Neil has as well like it's like you understand like this is kind of how life is and not that that makes it okay not that it makes anything easier but it's almost like that tether to reality yeah. and to oh, life. Oh no my dude is emotional I'm pretty sure he's a Virgo so like he kind of loses it but he stays oh. silent about it. <laughs> <laughs> like he's like this is my own personal personal turmoil that I have to go through and I will come out the other side but I'm gonna be a fucking mess for a few years well that's what I mean though it's like you still have like an anchor in reality yeah that it's like I will come back to this like you throw it out yeah. of the ocean you're like I don't know where I'm going but I'll come back when I'm My, ready this is the anchor that's in the middle of the ocean of yep. feeling feelings and I gotta swim through that feeling feelings sea of bullshit but to you get still to will anchor. always have like that Exactly. Yeah, that can bring you back in. Exactly. Whereas I did not <laughs> rip a f- I that like you were like I'm drowning. Can I share your anchor? Nope. I was like I'm drowning. Just let me drown. <laughs> Definitely like somebody. I needed an adult who just grabbed me like God. She's fucking Jesus can't Christ. swim in the fucking sea of emotion. It just flops you up on the pontoon boat. Get the up there Come on, i'm a pisces Christ. what do you want i live in the sea of emotions <laughs> you are literally an ocean creature <laughs> well that was a very long in-depth discussion of emotions let's continue now you know more about us and neil and neil so yeah this is a lot for anyone to take and neil was absolutely lost yeah and what do you do when this kind of tragedy grips your life and you are neil pert I don't know. He took to the road for a long, long journey of solitude and reflection. Oh, that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you is, say that? This is 100% a Neil Peart thing. <laughs> yeah. A Neil Peart production. Yeah. <laughs> On the road by myself. <laughs> the band ultimately took five years off to allow Neil the room to mourn and yep. find his footing again. Yeah. For nearly a year and a half of that time, he was on his motorcycle, traveling extensively through North and Central America, logging an astonishing 55,000 miles by the time his trip was concluded. That's amazing. He went from Canada across, or he went from like, I think Toronto across Canada up mm-hmm. to Alaska, down the Western coast into Mexico traveled the entirety of Mexico. I think he went into Belize what? and then came up the East Coast and back to Toronto, into Quebec and Toronto. That's on a motorcycle. Bananas. That's so long. And like honestly, let's address the fact that the fact that he 
stayed in one piece on a motorcycle for that long. Yeah. Especially after his daughter died in a car accident. I know. And also, like, some of those highways are not safe. Like, the highways oh, between Alaska and British Columbia are not fucking safe. No, I can't believe he rode his motorcycle to Alaska. <laughs> but good for him. I have you know, I he mean, fucking did it. I'm sure I'm sure that was exactly what he needed. Exactly. During his trip, he wrote in his journal, documenting everything from conversations with strangers to oh. profound epiphanies about his life and role in the universe to how pretty these mountains are. Yo, check these out mountains, these mountains, guys. These fucking rolling hills are great. <laughs> And he, then he made a book about and then it. He, and he did. <laughs> he got out of this trip exactly what he needed. Confirmation that his life does have meaning, even with all of this personal tragedy. With the help of his friends and remaining family, their love is what was going to help him heal. Yeah. And sometimes you need to see like how much of the world is out there. Sometimes you need to be alone for a year and yep. a half to realize you have all these people that love you and want you to be here. Yeah. That trip was exactly what he needed. Yep. Good. Completely understand why he did that. Yep. And for what it's worth, Getty and Alex totally understood yep. why he had to do it. Oh, yeah. And were more than happy to give him the time and the space that he needed. Well, I mean, they, again, they're brothers and I'm sure they were just like... They, I'm sure they were incredibly heartbroken over both deaths as well. Yeah, they and were probably good friends made, with them too. Yeah, and it probably made them look at their lives and be like, you know what? You take the time you need, whatever you, however long you take, we're going to spend that with our families. Yeah. Because like, we don't want to take for granted what we have. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That really makes you reevaluate, you know, the time that you are taking away from your own family. Yeah. So, so that's, I mean, ultimately that was, it was good. Yeah. After returning home, he ended up finding love again. Oh. He was introduced to photographer Carrie Nuttall. I think that's how you say her last name. I'm sorry if it's not. Um, Probably in like 1999 or 2000 by a mutual photographer friend. They were married on September 9th, 2000, and eventually they would become parents to daughter Olivia, born in 2009. Oh. Their marriage may have seemed like a suspiciously quick rebound from personal tragedy mm. but that's just how it works sometimes and yo it, that works a that's how it works a lot of times yeah and it seems like she really helped him overcome his grief and mm. become like the stable rock that he really needed mm. in order to like climb the steps of recovery from tragedy yeah so. She seemed like a, like a solid person for him to latch on to. Absolutely. Good. You know, it doesn't matter how long it takes. If it's a good, healthy relationship, it's a good, healthy relationship. Right. You can't, like, plan shit like that. No. If you meet the person that you're supposed to be with, it doesn't matter when when the timing is. Yeah. It, you, you just know. Yep. During his time off, Alex and Getty weren't sure if Neil was going to go back to Rush. As time went on, they were convinced that the band was pretty much done. Mm. But in 2001, much to the relief of his bandmates, Neil decided to rejoin the band. Oh, yay. What else is he going to do? He's like, well, I'm married. Things are getting better. Hey, let's bring hey. the band back together. <laughs> we're getting the band back together. The band's back on the menu, boys. <laughs> 
Recording was a bit touch and go at first. None of them had played much during their hiatus. In fact, Alex hadn't picked up a guitar in a year. Oh, shit. He's like, I forgot how to move my fingies. (laughs) How do I move my fingies? (laughs) Everyone handled Neil with kid gloves. He was nervous that his playing and his lyric writing wouldn't be up to par. And everyone wanted him to be comfortable. Yeah. Totally understand. Yeah. But when it came down to it, Rush wrote a record that wasn't just deeply personal, but helped show them that they still had that spark. Oh. On May 14th, 2002, they released Vapor Trails, their 17th studio album and first Rush album since Caress of Steel that did not contain any keyboards or synthesizers. Wow. Nana. <laughs> Just picture Getty looking out at Alex and saying, all right, Fine. Now's it's the all time. you. It's all you, Alex. Now's the time for compromises. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, you have to tour to support your albums. I mean, yeah. It was their first time on stage in years, and the whole tour for Vapor Trails was affirmation that they still had it. Fuck yeah. I'm 50, and I can kick, and I can stretch, (laughs) and I can still play live shows. (laughs) (laughs) They ended up playing countries they'd never been to before. In Sao Paulo, Brazil, they played to 60 thousand people it sounds like sao paulo brazil sounds like brazil they're yo they they're big into their rock music they fucking love it and they, they don't get a whole lot of shows so when they do they all go it's like and it, the entire country the takes entire the country <laughs> of brazil goes to this show yeah a good chunk of them yeah normally the guys would do meet and greets with fans before the shows as well as interviews for whatever local news outlets or magazines are there oh nice as we all know by now neil was painfully shy on Mm. the best of days but now it was inevitable that everyone fans and journalists alike would be asking him millions of questions about his dead daughter and wife Oh, no. He did not want to go through that, and the band didn't want to put him through that. Nope. So they decided as a group that Neil just wouldn't participate in any of it. And that's fine. And I think that kind of carried through into recent years, because mm. he didn't really he didn't really do interviews and, and the meet and greets after that, yeah. really. Like, any footage you see of, like... Shows in the last 10 years or so, he he wasn't there to do the meet and greets. Yeah. He wasn't there to do the interviews, which is fine. That's fine. He, he doesn't, doesn't have, have to. to. <laughs> he doesn't. Jinx, you owe me a Coke. Yeah, I mean, I guess. Uh, new sure. Coke? <laughs> new new and improved Coca-Cola? We're going to do new Coke and new Rush. Crystal Pepsi. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think they re-released that, didn't they? Oh, yeah. Nostalgia's back, baby. Oh, all right. As they geared up for a tour for the band's 30th anniversary, Alex landed himself in a bit of hot water. Oh, no. It was New Year's Eve 2003 and the Lifeson clan were ringing in the new year in Naples, Florida for some god-awful reason. And then Florida Man showed up That was ruined your, your night. That was your first mistake. Yeah, easily. <laughs> They were attending a black tie event at the Ritz-Carlton where Nat King Cole's brother, Freddie Cole, was performing. Okay. This sounds nice. It sounds nice. This is great. Sounds fancy for Florida. Fancy for Florida. 
that what could go wrong who knows yeah (laughs) well a lot of things could go wrong apparently alex's son justin was drunk how old was his son oh his son is uh so was he of age is all i'm wondering oh yes absolutely okay because alex had his two kids when they were very yeah because they were like in the 70s when he had his i think he had his first kid adrian when he was 17 and i think they had their i think they had justin when he was 20 oh okay yeah so these kids are adults they're they're adults okay they are capital a adults So, yeah, he was drunk and kept trying to interrupt the performance, which is shitty. Which is rude. And rude. Sir. 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 You need to sit down. (laughs) And many guests complained about the family's drunk dancing. Okay. (laughs) Which I think I would think that their drunk dancing is cute. But if you are, like, being an asshole to the performer. Yeah, don't be an asshole. I'm I'm going to check you for that. Let him play his music. He's Freddy Cole. Let him do what he wants. What are you Jesus. doing? Leave him alone. Um, Justin apparently also kept going up on stage and like grabbing the microphone. And at some point he said, hey, guys, give it up for Count Basie. And Freddy Cole was like, fuck you. I'm not Count Basie. And it's like, I can't help but think that maybe it was a little bit racist just it was a lot of things it was a lot of things it was a choice it was racist that was a that was a drunk choice that you made my friend ignorant it was rude and uh you deserve to be kicked out oh good he got (sighs) kicked out well oh no yeah the hotel called the cops yeah the cops i feel like that's a lot did they did he just not leave just kick him out just kick him out just kick him out but the hotel called the cops the cops escorted justin out of the ballroom Mm -hmm. and alex followed Mm because it's his son oh no justin then resisted arrest i don't really know why they were arresting him but he resisted arrest was tased (laughs) and then (laughs) alex tried to intervene and he was punched by a deputy and broke his nose (gasps) The cops also alleged that Alex spit in their face and threw one of the deputies down a stairwell, and that's why he also got arrested. So, like, I don't really care what he did to the cops. Yeah. I mean... I don't really care. Fucking do it. I don't just, care. Just don't be rude to, like, you know, Freddie Cole. Freddie Cole deserved none of this. But, like... Just be nice to Freddie Cole. Yeah, don't I mean, be- you could spit a cop's face. I don't really don't give a fuck. Yeah, no, but like, don't be a racist asshole. If you were being a racist, I think he were. You know what? He was just being captain asshole. Like, yeah, he's checking all the boxes. He was being a privileged white I, dude. Yes, he. I don't think he was like trying to be racist, like capital R racist. I think he was just being a capital A asshole. And yeah. in being an asshole. He was everything. And I'm not trying to... No, you know what it is? Here's the twist. Justin was Florida man. (laughs) Justin. Justin was Florida man. Florida even makes Canadians into Florida man. So... It's the magic of Florida. (laughs) That's the magic of Florida. Do you want to get arrested? Come to Florida. Come to Florida. We'll get you arrested in 10 minutes. You don't think you will, but you will. (laughs) Jesus. All right. Cool. Yeah. 
So, yeah, Alex got arrested, too, and he was initially facing four felony charges, including assaulting a police officer. Oh, my God. But the charges were dropped to Mr. Mr. Meaners. Mr. Meaners. Mr. Meaners. He served a year of probation, but not before a picture started circulating of of him coming out of the jailhouse wearing a shirt covered in blood from his broken nose. Literally front bib blood. Yeah, I've had a broken nose. That shit's... You've had a broken I've nose. I've had a broken nose. We both know that shit doesn't stop. No. You're bleeding for a while. Yeah. And it's I mean, a lot. Mine stopped after a while, but like, that's why I also thought my nose wasn't broken. <laughs> It, it turns you. turns out it was super broken. <laughs> yeah, just didn't look at it. Look like it from the outside. Yeah. Uh, for what it's worth, it does sound like his son was being a total asshole that night. Yeah. So that's what I'm going with. Yeah. Like I get it. You deserve to be kicked the fuck out, but I don't think they deserved the extent of what happened. Yeah, I think the cops were just pretty, like, excited to arrest a celebrity. Yeah, but also, like, you weren't arresting him because he was being kind of racist. You were, you, were, you were right. You were arresting him because you were like, we can do this. You were arresting him because the rich fucking assholes at yeah. this Ritz-Carlton were like, we don't like the way they're dancing. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much kind of how it was. The real, the real twist here it's just that now he's florida man he now goes into the annals of that hallowed institution called hall of fame florida man (laughs) beautiful (sighs) and that still happens before they were inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame so good for them good for them yeah so in 2006 writing music for their next album ensued Mm-hmm. For the first time, the three musicians were not writing together in the same vicinity. Oh. While Alex and Getty were in their home turf of Toronto, Neil was living in Southern California with his new wife. Okay. About 10 years later, he would become a U.S. citizen and continued living in California for the rest of his life. Good for him. I fucking hate Southern California, but you know, if you like it, you like it. Have I, fun. I like San Diego. I actually thought that San Diego was lovely. The whale's vagina. I like the whale's vagina. Indeed. By the end of the year, the trio would reunite at Allaire Studios mm. in Shokin, New York, not far from us at all. I was going to say, where the fuck is that? Shokin is in the Catskills. It's probably oh. about an hour south of us. And actually, Shokin is about. 25-30 minutes from New Paltz, okay. which is where I was going to college. You were there. At the time they were recording this album. If only you knew. If only I knew. <laughs> I wouldn't have done anything. Right. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> so they went to Shokin, New York to record a banger of an album. Mm. Snakes and Arrows was released a few months later in May 2007, peaking at number three in both the U.S. and Canada. Did they mean to call it Snakes and Barrels? (laughs) They should have. Because, like, what? Snakes and Arrows? But Snakes and Barrels, because that is a direct influence on Rush, isn't it? Right? Should be. I mean, I imagine that they could take the piss with uh, Metalocalypse and... I would Brandon hope so. Smalls. If they can take the piss with South Park, they can take the piss mm-hmm. with Death Clock. Yeah. That's why I appreciate them. Yeah. The tour was a sight to behold. 
Every night on stage, Getty would play in front of a wall of washing machines and industrial chicken rotisseries. Yes. While I'm not sure what the washing machines were about, the rotisserie chickens did have a purpose. I know. And I love it. I love it. Every night, the crew would stock these huge rotisseries with real whole chickens that would get toasty golden brown while the band played on. Which, by the way, it must have smelled so, so good. good in those if you have like three industrial size rotisseries that are oh. roasting like 30 chickens each, yeah. that whole place smells fucking amazing. Oh my god, people must have been so fucking hungry. So hungry. They should have cooked more before the show and sold them and like mm-hmm. made sandwiches or something. Ooh. Oh god. I don't even like chicken anymore, but I imagine the smell intoxicating. Yeah. The smell is amazing. I don't give a shit if you're a vegan or whatever. The smell of rotisserie chicken is really good. Is amazing. Mm. If they made candles that smelled like that, I would be so happy. I mean, they smell, they've made um, smells that smell like hot dog. You can make chicken. There's smells that smell like hot dogs. <laughs> Candles. <laughs> Candles that smell like hot dogs. Have you smelled smells before? They smell amazing. <laughs> uh, anyway, tell them about the chicken. Smells, am I right? <laughs> chicken smells. Chicken smells. Yeah, tell them about the chicken. So yeah, every night... They would make these chickens, and at the end of the night, they would donate all the chickens to homeless shelters in whatever city they happened to be in that night. But Ashley, I thought they were Nazis. (laughs) But they're Nazis. (laughs) That guy still's like, no, they're Nazis. Fuck that guy. Well, they're Nazis, but also they're commie fucks because they're just giving food out. You can't be, but you know what? You can't. (sighs) Nope. That's not how it works. Mid-tour on July 16th, 2008, they appeared on American television for the first time in 33 years. What? 33. They made a point of never doing late night television because they thought it was kind of cheesy and kind of thirsty. I guess that's fair. I totally get it. I would feel so embarrassed to go on like late night with James Corden or whatever. Or like Jimmy Kimmel. Or Seth Meyers. Jimmy Fallon. Oh, fuck oh, Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy? Oh, God. If I went on late night with Jimmy Fallon, I'd spit on him <laughs> and walk away. Like Alex Lifeson did, with the theoretically, cops. to with the, the cops. You know what? I'd, I'd Alex Lifeson him. Yeah. Spit on him. Spit on him. Fuck you, bitch. He knows what he did. But they broke that precedent when they appeared on the Colbert Report. Oh, they did a short interview where they didn't get to talk much, but Neil got in a couple good jokes in. I bet. And Stephen asked the question everybody had on their minds in the mid-aughts. Mm. You are yet to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Is there any chance that your next album will be called That's Bullshit? <laughs> I fucking love it. Yes, Stephen Colbert. Yes. Yeah. But honestly. Yeah. It's fucking bullshit. How the fuck, like, weren't they in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, like, the minute they could be inducted? Yeah. Oh, is it is it because the institution's bullshit? Yeah, it could be that. Maybe. But we'll get to that in a second. Let's talk about the Colbert Report. All right. So, I don't... Did you ever see it? The I mean, I saw the clip of him saying that, but I didn't see the interview. Okay. Well, the interview is cute. They didn't really get to answer 
their questions because he was so they had this whole running joke because like the producer or whatever is a huge Rush fan. Oh, so the introduction it's Steven talking with the producer and the producer's like, yeah, three minutes till Rush. <laughs> He's like really obsessed with it and like oh. it's very cute. And then Rush come in. Well, they don't come in. They're already there. And then Stephen Colbert does his like hey. he does the inter- he does the yes, writing ins- for right. the interview instead of the, the guest. Oh, <laughs> I forgot that was fucking hilarious. So he's asking questions that are technically questions from the producer who Aww. is a big fan. And uh he asks questions that are very funny, so the audience laughs a lot, and Rush doesn't really get to answer the question before he asks another one. Oh, my God. And then they perform Tom Sawyer, and then they show some backstage stuff, and they actually play rock bands, and they play Tom Sawyer's rock band, and they fucking sucked at it. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> the audience was booing them, and Gay's like, I don't think they like. Us. Oh no! Oh my god, that's so very cute. sweet. Very sweet. Oh, I want to see that. And you could tell that all of them really wanted to like go really crazy with their instruments, and they can't because it's like on easy mode, and you can do the basic <laughs> beat, and that's about it. Like, and out of everybody, like Neil is probably like, I could actually kind of do something with yeah, these, yeah. and I can't, and I can't. And Alex wants to do fancy finger work, and it's like, nah, you got like buttons. You have four buttons to work with. (laughs) So buttons, Alex Lifeson. (laughs) He's definitely Alex Lifeson. So buttons. But yeah, when it came to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, we would have to wait another five years for the ball to get rolling on that shit. Yeah, we would. Morons. What? (laughs) In 2009, they appeared in the movie I Love You, Man. Oh, yeah. Where finally people were shown how to properly pronounce Neil's last name. Yep. Straight from the horse's mouth. Yep. Yet, everybody still fucks it up. Yeah. All the time. I mean, we did forever. I'm not We gonna, did too. And then I watched that s- clip and I'm like, oh, it's pear with a T on it. Pear with a T. Pear with a T. So starting around the 2010s, Rush starts seeing a pop culture resurgence. Mm-hmm. They had always been there for their huge and devoted fan base, but seeing movie stars like Jason Segel and Paul Rudd so publicly psyched gave them some cred. Yeah, they're like not even acting. Those two they're, men yeah. were genuinely chuffed as puffs to yes. be like, are we... We're, we're, we're in the rush. Pre- we're in the presence of greatness, guys. Like, to to see these two movie stars who have like, you know, definitely earned their stripes. Oh yeah. Be around Rush and be like honestly floored and like hi, you're Neil you're Neil Pert. <laughs> you're you're, no, me? you're Neil Pert. Oh no, it's Pert. It's Pert. No, I'm pretty sure it's Pert. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, like Seeing that in a movie that did as as well as I Love You, Man, Mm. it at least got people who are our age in the millennial category really thinking like, oh, shit, like we slept on Rush for a really long time, but their music is really fucking amazing and we should actually really be into this. Right. Yeah. Only so many of our parents were into Rush, too, though, I feel like. Yeah. Like, my parents were not into Rush. Nobody in my family was into Rush. My dad was kind of into Rush. He has the 
the albums that are not great. <laughs> so I'm going to have to flesh Says that a lot out a little bit. Dad. It really does. Buddy. Buddy Rich over here. <laughs> Buddy Rich. Buddy not so rich, Woof. honestly. But yeah, people see, you know, famous movie stars losing their shit over Rush. And they're like, all right, let me check this out. All of a sudden, it's cool to like Rush. Yeah. In the early 2010s, they started working on their next album, an extremely ambitious concept album called Clockwork Angels. Mm-hmm. Neil, of course, suggested that the album be set in a steampunky and dystopian world that was simultaneously historic and futuristic. What? That doesn't sound like anything Neil Peart no, would ever want to write about. never. What? Never. <laughs> In this world, steam power is all there is. The only light is from fire, and alchemy plays a huge role. Steampunk. Fucking nerds. (laughs) But I love it. Each song on the album is a chapter that has its own story that relates to the album's story as a whole. Mm -hmm. They are the parts of a sum. Uh Each song or chapter has its own corresponding symbol. Yeah, if you look at the... um, cover at least it's like a, a, a oh it's circle. like a circle with the symbols on the outside yeah right? it almost looks like the zodiac wheels yep i do you're right i have seen that yeah. album yeah neil also wrote a corresponding text to help explain the mood of each song oh my gosh neil. after decades of concise lyric writing neil finally went back to prose and Yay. the band finally got back to the progressive rock roots Oh, I really want to hear this album now. Yeah. Recording Clockwork Angels happened in two phases, and in between was a tour. Oh. So in June 2010, they embarked on the Time Machine tour, which concluded a year later. They immediately went back into the studio to put the finishing touches on Clockwork Angels, which was then released on June 12th, 2012. Hmm. In compendium with the album was a novelization of Clockwork Angels written by Neil and Kevin J. Anderson. That was released in 2012, and three years later, they released a sequel called Clockwork Lives. (laughs) Okay. That was a lot to talk about. I'm sorry. I need need a sippy sip. Yeah, that's a lot. That's intense. That is is a, um, a concept existence. That is called feeling your oats. Yeah. And getting deep into your own shit. That is that is Rush being the most Rush that they could ever Rush. That is like Rushception. Yeah. So much Rush. Finally. Big time Rush. (laughs) Big time Rush. (laughs) That can be the cute little like Hard Day's Night kind of Rush. Isn't that a a band? Big time Rush. Is it? I think so. They're like a pop group from like I think around that time. I don't know. I don't know. I'll have to look that up. Somebody might know what I'm so- talking is it, about. Is it like Run One Direction? Or yeah, something? like they were like a cutesy little group. Gross. Yeah. Right. It wasn't good. <laughs> Finally, about a year after Clockwork Angels was released, the unthinkable happened. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Not going to happen. We have long denounced the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as irrelevant trash, a shitty white boys club. And an institution that increasingly becomes more and more useless as it drastically and with great speed careens farther and farther away from current world culture. I think that's true, though. It is. Like These are all accurate statements. Don't get me wrong. That is still very much the official rock candy opinion on the rock, yeah. on the rock and roll hall of fame. But finally. Once in a while. Finally. 
They do it right. On April 18th, 2013, Rush was inducted. Woo! Dave Grohl and Taylor Hawkins from Foo Fighters inducted them and performed with them while dressed up as Rush during their robe phase. Yes! Complete with long wigs and kimonos. Why did they didn't need wigs? Their hair was long. Not long enough. Oh my god. Definitely not long All enough. Right, fair enough. But the, it was so enthusiastic. So I don't think many bands get that enthusiastic of an entrance. Not at all. It can't be understated how much their fans showed up for them oh when they God. were inducted. They got a standing ovation that was so long and so loud that people wouldn't sit the fuck down until they stood up and thanked them. How adorable is that? I can't. See, that's going to make me cry. It's right? like, it's it, like you bow to no one. <gasps> stop it. It is like the oh most fucking Return of the King hobbit moment that's ever existed in rock history. Oh, my God. It's like everyone always ignored them. And then finally, it's like, they get their no, recognition. No, no. They're the hobbits of the They're rock. They're the hobbits of the rock genre. World. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm going to cry. <laughs> okay. I've been drinking and it's been an emotional week, okay? Yeah. Okay. I'm not going to cry. We can't bring up that scene in Lord in Lord of the Rings ever yeah, again. Yeah, you can't talk about that around us. We get no. really emotional. The Clockwork Angels tour wrapped up in August 2013 and the band decided to take an unprecedented full year off. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. I don't think it's unprecedented Every anymore. time they take time off, it's literally unprecedented. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it took an unprecedented five years off. I mean, arguably, I wrote this part of my notes before I wrote the front part of my notes. That's so fair. everything's unprecedented. <laughs> For a band that had been working almost constantly since 1968, mm-hmm. a full year off where they wouldn't even talk about band stuff. And it didn't have to do with personal tragedies. Yes. That was unheard of. Right. It's like they are taking a break where they're like, we will come back. But like, this is our summer vacation. Or like they're taking a break because guys, we're happy. Let's continue being happy for like a year. Happy? Happy? But it provided them a time to become reacquainted as friends. Oh. Not just bandmates. As well as to pursue their own interests. Like Getty and his massive baseball memorabilia collection. Stop, I love it. And his massive vintage bass guitar collection. Well, I mean, yeah. And Alex flying planes and oh. Neil with his super fast cars and his bikes. That sounds lovely. Look at they these. like expensive things. Yeah, what's that like? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. A year later, they released the R40 box set to commemorate the 40th anniversary of Neil joining the band. Oh, that's right. They put together a large-scale tour to promote the box set that was massively successful. Oh, I bet. 26 out of 33 shows were sold out, and the remaining seven shows were at a 90% capacity, proving that the old dog still got it. How many women were there? <laughs> 10 <laughs> through the whole thing. Oh, we could have made it 12. I just want to point out that like, I was so tired when I wrote this that I literally wrote... Proving that the old dog shit had it. <laughs> what does that even mean? You have dogs. They're old. They shit in they your house. They shit in my house, literally. After the R40 tour, Rush announced that it would be their last tour ever. 
Oh. Because of Alex's psoriatic arthritis and Neil's persistent tendonitis, constant touring just wasn't an option anymore. I get it. Alex stressed that the band wasn't breaking up, just reducing their performances. Small tours and sporadic performances were still a possibility, which is quite frankly what Ozzy Osbourne should have done so long ago and refuses to fucking do. He cannot do a tour anymore. He is too fucking old and sick, but he still insists on planning tours and then cancels them. Does he insist on it? Or does Sharon insist on it? Who the fuck knows? Either way, somebody insists upon themselves and tries to fucking do it. And it's like, he's too old. He can't do it. And that's fine. It's fine. If you want to do one show here and there with a few weeks in between, sounds great. You know what? Give the old man some fucking rest. Y'all have been performing for so long. You deserve to take it easy. Thank you for giving us what you've given. Also, enjoy your life. You are allowed to retire. It's fine. It's great. But then in January 2018, Alex told news outlets that new Rush music and tours were off the table for good. Mm. He and Getty were a bit cryptic about the end of Rush And that's because they knew something devastating that no one else knew. Neil had been diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. (sighs) Around mid-2016, Neil received the news no one ever wants to hear, especially a career musician. No. He was told he has glioblastoma, a form of cancer that starts in the brain rather than is spread to the brain from some other part of your body. (sighs) It started in the few years leading up to his diagnosis. His wife, Carrie, noticed behavioral and cognitive changes in him. He was depressed, which wasn't too unusual, but he also had trouble completing crossword puzzles and even speaking. And that's not... That's not normal. Not at all. Not at all. An MRI revealed the final diagnosis. The doctor gave Neil only 12 to 18 months to live. It was absolutely gut-wrenching news to his friends and family Mm -hmm. especially considering his daughter was only seven or eight years old i was gonna say like his daughter's super young right because they had her in 2009 yep so right now she's maybe she's 11 or 12 yeah no she'd be 12 Mm -hmm. but neil faced the inevitability of an early death with of course despair oh But according to his family, he also faced it with strength and stoicism. Because that's him. Because that's him. He wanted to be there for his daughter and be the dad he always wanted to be for her. So he spent a lot of time with her in his last years. Most of his days and evenings were at home, cooking dinner and riding his beloved motorcycles. Mm. Even up to the end, he was riding. And when he became too sick to handle a bike himself, he did so with the help of friends. Oh, but one thing Neil did not want to do with his final days was have the media or fans up his fucking butt about it. Of course not. He was such a private dude. Like, oh, yeah. Like just doing the meet and greets with torture. So yeah, like, I can't I can't even fucking imagine being Neil Pear oh, dying, literally dying, dying knowing you're dying. People knowing that you're dying. Yeah. And being up your butt because people are terrible. Yeah. Especially when, like, especially fucking music journalists are assholes about it. Oh, my gosh. I'm so glad nobody, I'm so glad for his sake that nobody ever let the cat out of the bag. 
He asked Alex and Getty to keep tight-lipped about his illness, and they did a pretty good job. Of course. If reporters asked why Rush wasn't continuing, they were like, we're not saying we're totally done, but Rush might not look the same in the future. Yeah. Like, kind of like what we were just saying. It's okay. Like, they've given us so much music. Yeah. It's okay. You guys can sit the fuck down. And I understand that, like, with people like them, it's it's not necessarily a job. And it's something that, like, making music is something that you're always going to want to do. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's not something you have to do. Right. But it kind of is something you have to do. Right. Um, Just to, like, express yourself and make yourself feel better. Like, mm-hmm. you've got something off your chest. Yeah. And I think, though, like, news journalists and fans can also, like, sit back and realize, like, Maybe they're just not going to do Rush anymore, but they'll do other stuff. Right. And that's fine. Yeah. And I also understand that it's very hard to accept that Rush is no longer together. Right. You know? Neil just didn't want to spend his remaining days commiserating with strangers that he was going to die. He wanted to die his way and with his dignity, which was so important to him throughout his life. Of course. Alex and Getty were really good at deflecting, which is why Neil's passing took so many people by surprise. He died on January 7th, 2020, kicking off the biggest trash heap year that we have seen since 2016 when David Bowie's death kicked off a fucking shit abyss of a year. Oh my God. Holy shit, I didn't even make that connection. Yeah. David Bowie and Neil Peart fucking... Their deaths in Januarys gave us our worst years. Yeah. Holy shit. So in January, if a fucking famous musician who's really We're going to have a fucking shit fucking year. Wow. It's like the tea leaves. So just wait a month. See who dies. Oh, I don't want to. I remember when you told me, because you texted me the news, Mm -hmm. and I was in PetSmart buying (laughs) cat food. And I was like, I'm going to cry in the middle of PetSmart buying cat food. And I literally had to put the cat food down and just stare at the shelf and just like cry a little bit. Just go over to like the aquarium tanks and cry a little bit at the fish. I didn't. That's actually a really good idea. Next time you tell me someone dies, I'll go cry in front of You have to go over towards like the litter boxes and stuff because nobody's ever there. Nobody's ever looking at litter boxes. They're not. They don't go to PetSmart for the... (laughs) The almost two years between Neil's death and now were not easy. So Getty especially had a very difficult time coming to terms with his friend's death. Mm. I mean, Getty's had to deal with a lot. Yeah. In his own life, he's had to deal with a lot. Yeah. Um, So dealing with literally his best friend's death is quite difficult, guys. Yeah. Quite fucking difficult. His way of dealing with it was to literally take a page from his friend's book and start writing. Oh. With the help of author Daniel Richler, Getty released his book called Getty Lee's Big Beautiful Book of Bass in 2018. I was like, I'm going to get sad. I'm sorry. <laughs> Big then Beautiful you- Book of Bass? Yes. Thank you, Getty. After Neil's death, Daniel noticed Getty's struggle to come to terms with it. He tried coaxing him into writing down some of his childhood memories, which then opened a floodgate. 
Mm. Getty started writing his memoirs, which has apparently turned into a massive composition, which he will release in 2022. Nice. Which I am very much looking forward to reading. Can't wait to not have to read books about music any goddamn. Oh, goddamn it, Getty. <laughs> in the meantime, Getty had to deal with another death in his family. Mm. His beloved mother, Manya Weinrib, passed away on July 2nd, 2021 at age 95. Oh my gosh. The fact that she fucking lived that long is amazing. 90 fucking five. And the shit and she was, that woman she's a fucking Holocaust has survivor. Seen. Yeah, she was that her story alone. Oh my gosh. I am so glad that she told Getty and his siblings about her experience yeah. in the Holocaust mm-hmm. because that would have been lost with her death. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that he retained it all yeah I mean, to be able to just tell people about it because like he doesn't just do shit for rush right. he goes to do interviews and you know events and stuff solely for the purpose of telling his mother's story good and that i think is very important well some people don't let even if it's bad shit some people won't let like the history of their family you know, live on through them. And sometimes right. you kind of have to. Right. And the thing is with Getty, he not only, not only did his mother tell him these stories, but he took them on as like, this is our family story. And he told the public in general because he had an audience. Yeah. And he took the opportunity to tell this audience about his mother's experience. They wrote songs about it. Yeah. You know what is sad as it sounds to say right now? Even in our, the year of our Lord, 2021, we still need to hear these stories because some people don't take them seriously. <sighs> that. And we have very precious few people that have lived through these things mm-hmm. left on this planet. So the stories need to live on. They absolutely do. Yeah. And thanks to Getty, they will. Yes. So. And I really hope that in the future he does something even bigger with that. He might. The most recent news we have on Getty is that he's giving Les Claypool from Primus some bass lessons. Oh, my God. Which makes sense. Honestly, I love this friendship. I'm here for it. Shipping this. I'm shipping this. I mean, we don't even have to ship it. It's just our OTP. Yeah. I love it. But now he's also collaborating on a super secret project with the dude from Bare Naked Ladies. Which dude? The, the one ma- that was arrested? The, there was one that was arrested? Yeah, wasn't one, like, arrested for cocaine? <laughs> Good for him. I think he was, a, <laughs> he was the I, one who rap, who talks, sings really fast. That, that's the one he's collaborating with. Oh, I think he was arrested has, for cocaine. For has, cocaine. He, c- cocaine. Um, he has weird, like, chipmunk teeth. Yeah. Like, that are, like, way too nice for what he looks like. Yeah. Yeah, that one. I forgot his name. Same. Honestly, I never learned it to begin with in order to forget it. So at least you're honest. <sighs> you know. All right. Well, guy. Can- Canadian guys working together. Let's see what happens. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I hope it's not like the theme song to a sequel to Big Bang Theory. You know what? As long as it can't be as bad as anything Weezer does now. True. Mm-hmm. When bare naked ladies conjure up more respect than your band, 
Stop. Oof. That's when you stop. That's when you stop. They should have stopped a long time ago. Stop it, Weezer. <laughs> anyway. The moral of the story is, stop it, Weezer. <laughs> While Getty and Alex have vowed not to continue as Rush proper mm-hmm. without Neil. Of course. That doesn't discount the possibility that they will reunite for commemorative shows. Yeah. Tribute shows are great. Yeah. They have also recently told some news outlets that they are working on new musical projects together. Good. I hope they can still make amazing things. I really hope that, you know, something comes from their garage sessions. Yeah. Maybe they'll they'll buy a nice little house in the outskirts of Toronto and start start jamming. jamming. Start jam house. Convert that TV into an amp and start jamming. Oh, and cover it all in palm trees. Oh. Palm tree TV. Okay. <laughs> so, in in conclusion here, mm. I have a long-ass conclusion because right. I have things to say about the last band I'm going to be talking about All right. fully on our original episodes here. So, Ian McKellen was once asked what he thought about Christopher Lee, and his answer was, he's a nice man. That's a terrible thing to say. (laughs) He said that because nice can be so boring and so trite. It means you're too agreeable and maybe don't have such a great personality. Oh. But Getty Lee, Alex Lifeson, and Neil Peart have consistently been described as nice throughout their 50 plus year career. Yeah. Maybe it's the Canadianness. Maybe it's because they didn't see the same kind of fame. Their, co- their contemporaries, like Black Sabbath and Genesis did. Okay. It doesn't matter. The fact is, if these guys were not genuinely nice people, mm. they wouldn't have survived so long as a cohesive unit. Nope. Rush is first and foremost a group that can tolerate each other. Yup. Which is way more than we can say about any of the other bands we have ever covered in this four years we've been doing this Mm -hmm. they know each other through and through eccentricities and stupid tics and annoying habits and all the warts (laughs) and they accept them and work with them even when getty and alex were at each other's throats and alex was about to shove a keyboard down getty's throat (laughs) they still like brothers pulled through having grown closer as a result Mm. Even when absolute tragedy struck and the fate of the band was up in the air, it didn't matter. They were friends first and friendship comes first. The band was a trio of humans that were not just reading the same book. They were on the same page, reading the same sentence always. Yeah. They may have been at different ends of the sentence sometimes, but they always understood each other and were willing to work with the other to catch them up to where they needed to be. Hmm. In the Beyond the Lighted Stage documentary, Trent Reznor said that there is something pure, sincere, and honest about Rush, and I think that's a good assessment. Yeah. I agree. God damn it. I gotta stop crying. What's wrong with me? You're allowed to have emotions, you know. Fucking Brussels sprout. (laughs) They just want to hang with their friends, crack stupid jokes, and make music. Yeah. Some of the most amazing music of the 20th and 21st centuries came out of that. Created by three of the greatest musicians in modern history who all 
whether by fate or something more calculated, happen to be in the same fucking band together. Like, how does that happen? It doesn't happen. <laughs> how This has not happened in any other band ever. There has always been at least one weak link mm. or somebody who just didn't give a fuck. Or, or a like who's a total asshole. Or like a total fucking ego. rotating door of drummers or something. <laughs> like, this doesn't happen. The loss of Neil Peart is still difficult to process and accept, but if it was going to happen, I'm glad it happened when it did. He didn't have to deal with the bullshit that was 2020 or 2021 or 2022 because it's inevitable. It's going to be a shit show. Yeah. The popularity and acceptance they found in the 2000s was needed before they could go anywhere and now that it's cool to like Rush, <laughs> a whole new generation of people can catch the mystery, catch the drift. Catch the spirit. Catch, catch the, the spit. Oh, <laughs> And that's, uh, that's the story of Rush. And I'm going to go bow my ass out now. That's real good. Half of this is sad is half of this is me crying because like I'm sad that this is the last band that I'm gonna be really covering in depth. But oh. like But also you kind of just had a journey with them. I did. I did. I was on that motorcycle with Neil Parrot. Oh. So I like I fucking get it. Cause you know we had a friend die too. Yeah. That's I um it's a really nerdy reference. <laughs> but in Harry Potter, they have the Thestrals. They're these horses, like these these horse bones. <laughs> you know, skeletal horse horses <laughs> that carry the that that like draw the carriages into Hogwarts. Oh, yep, I know what but, you're talking like, about. You I actually know what you're them. talking about. Here you go. Yeah. See, you can't see them unless you've experienced like witnessed a death. Yep, and it's like that's J.K. Rowling's a shitty piece of turf bullshit. <laughs> But, like, fuck if she didn't get grief right with that. Like, there is something about loss. That makes you see things you never saw before. And other people who have gone through it. And you just look at each other and you share that moment of, like, yeah, I know. I know. And I think, like, for us losing a friend made us more sensitive to, like, death yeah and to people dying and to understand people that we maybe might not have understood before yeah so yeah i'm just still really stuck on the fact that neil bear brought in 2020 yeah neil (laughs) thanks neil we get it it sucks but um maybe a better year next year that would be great yeah but i'm not counting on it I don't know, Rush Limbaugh died this year, so that's got to be something. Hey, taking the pro column. <laughs> um, but I I don't know. I just really want to stress the idea that Rush has been on their bullshit for 50 <laughs> plus years. And they didn't... All they did was make music, mm-hmm. release albums, and tour. And the, their fan base is insane. Oh, yeah. It's massive. It's fucking enthusiastic as hell mm-hmm. and very devoted. Yeah. And um, they have carried them through this 
this whole journey that is their career Mm -hmm. and have made them very successful they don't do the promotion bullshit they don't do the late night circuit when they release an album they don't do you know they never compromised who they were they've always been a band of their own creation they have their own morals their own ways of doing things and they're still successful with that that doesn't happen a lot not at all and nobody has this level of fame and fan devotion mm-hmm. when they haven't had like they haven't even needed a PR person because oh, yeah. they don't do PR nope they just they just exist yeah. and they release music and their popularity is based solely on their music yep they're, That's insane. To they me. are one of the few bands that gets to live on their talents alone. Exactly. And which like is great. the only time they have ever really gotten a lot of promotion was in the 2010s, like when they were in I Love You Man. Oh and my like God. Yeah. and also Freaks and Geeks. We have to oh, acknowledge yeah. that. G- I mean Jason Siegel has Jason done Siegel, a lot you know, period. For what it for what it's worth, <laughs> Jason Siegel has done a lot for yeah. Rush. And also <laughs> but also Rush never asked him to do that. No. He did it himself. Because he fucking loves them. Right. And I'm sure Jason Siegel, as a Canadian, um, understood, like, these guys don't get the accolades that they, they deserve. deserve. Yeah. And they've been around for this long. They're still putting out amazing music. Mm-hmm. They deserve a little bit more yeah. recognition. And he gave that to them. And I think that really kick-started Along with a society that currently is a bit more quote unquote woke (laughs) and really sees being different and being nerdy as a good thing. Yeah. And Rush is the embodiment of that. Rush, for better or worse, that has been their reputation. And I think the acceptance of nerdy culture and Rush has really helped them become relevant to a new generation Mm -hmm. that otherwise would have absolutely no idea who they were and also what helped is that getty lee grew his hair back out he did because that 80s shit and you know what working that night hob (laughs) shit Mm -mm. no i don't like the night hob i like the long like nice Mm, that nice hair his beautiful hair show it off really does and you know the only <laughs> the only dude who's pushing 70 that can rock a, a soul patch and those glasses and those glasses those and get glasses. away with it it's how do you do it it's because he's nice yeah in a good way nice in a good way nice in the non-ian mckellen way yeah i guess all right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. This was an epic emotional tale that we did. <laughs> an expect emotional to be journey on. that I I should have expected and did not prepare for. This is like Return of the King. There were some false endings. There was a lot of crying. Yeah. You bow to no one. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, this was our Lord of the Rings. What better way to pay homage to Rush than to compare them to Lord of the Rings? Yeah. This fits. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. If it fits, we sits. And we're sitting. We sits, yeah. We're the cats of music podcasts. And uh, we fit and sit. Mm -hmm. So, yes, thank you all so much for listening. We hope you really liked our series on Rush. You fucking better. (laughs) I cried over this a lot. (laughs) Ashley fucking (laughs) cried. Y'all witnessed Ashley fucking crying. You did. So, that was a thing. Yep. Now you, now you know you're special. I'm really glad I saved this for 
my the last end. my last full deep dive well, into a band because yeah. it tie it 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 ties up everything that we usually talk about, you know. Yeah, and then we just have one more left, and it's mine, and that is also going to be emotional. Be a fucking journey. That's so. also it's going to be a different trilogy. I'll I'll figure out which one to compare it to. Okay, but it's not Lord of the Rings. No, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. But it it'll also probably end in crying too. Probably. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yes. Thank you all for listening. We love you and appreciate you. Uh, you can go find us on social media: Instagram, um, Facebook at Rock Candy Podcast, and Twitter at Rock Candy Pod. Um, you know, we're still down for chatting and answer questions. Oh, send us your questions. Yeah. I mean, we're gonna probably, do. I, it'll probably be the first week of February, but we're gonna do our AMA. Ask, so ask a. a Ask me anything. Ask us anything. Yeah. So, any questions you have ever had for us? Again, we've gotten some interesting ones. Yeah. I'm going to have to genuinely, I might have to do research on myself. Even if they're out there or personal or whatever, just fucking ask us. We'll probably just get real shitty into the episode. It'll be great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm okay with that. Same, same, same. Yeah. All right. So, that wraps it up for this week. And until next week, party on Ashley. Party on Maggie. Okay. Party on you crazy kids out there. <laughs>